You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. All right. Good morning, Real Life. How's it going? Yeah, so we're in Revelation, you know, nice light topic for the Sunday morning, and uh, we are going to dig in deep this morning. So you guys ready to go to work? Yeah, this is going to be, I was not inspired by your response, by the way, so (laughs) you're going to have to get ready because it's Revelation. It's a complex book. Now, that being said, I don't think it was so complex for the first century readers. I think that the first readers of this book knew exactly what was being said, and there wasn't a lot of confusion. And I think there's a lot of reasons why we get confused with this book. And so, I'm, I'm, for me, there are probably lots of layers of meanings to the book, and I'm not trying to undo any of those. I just want to make sure that for you and I, We are seeing this book through the lens of the one who wrote it and the lens of the first readers of the book. And that's what matters to me. Now, we can make other applications, and if you want to talk about whatever, you know, future events, whatever, that's fine. Um, But for me, my pursuit is in proper understanding of its original intent so that we can get at at least what I think the words that God actually inspired meant. Uh, So, with that said, one of the things that we have to remember about this book is that when it was written, it was not written with chapters and verses. Those were added later, and sometimes we can use those chapters and verses to assume that the author is switching thoughts, and I don't think that that's necessarily always accurate. Sometimes it is, but it's not always accurate. And so, we are in this grand vision that John has of the throne room of God, which is important because John begins his hope for the people that are the first readers of this book. He begins this hope in God's throne room where he says, I'm in the throne room and God sits on the throne which is good news, not only because God sits on the throne, but it's also good news because Domitian doesn't, right? There is no power of this world that can thwart or transcend the purposes of God. Oh, and by the way, God's not surprised, and the other broken record that we're gonna keep harping on in this series is, and John's saying, and we're not even the first ones to have to have endured this. God's people have been here before, which is why there's so much appeal to the Old Testament. Um, Revelation has been referred to as the new Exodus. Um, it's, the, it's the retelling of the Exodus story, the, these people who were oppressed by a powerful nation and God um, delivered them. That's a whole other conversation for another sermon. But um, this is something that's really important for us to grab a hold of because one of the critiques of Revelation is that it's too Jewish. It's too Jewish of a book. It relies too much on the Old Testament. And so it's not really applicable for Christians. Well, if you were John and you were trying to prove that God's people have been here before, what else would you use? There is no New Testament for them. Does that make sense? Like, he uses the scriptures that they all already agree to, which happen to be Jewish. (laughs) It's just, I don't know. Sometimes people don't think through their words very well. I know you guys aren't ever guilty of that. 
Um, you're careful with your words, always. But sometimes people don't think that stuff through. So anyway, I want to begin, I want to pick up this vision that John is having. Remember in chapter 4 last week, John goes into the throne room. And in the right hand of him who sits on the throne, who sits on the throne? God. And in his right hand is a scroll. And in that scroll are seven seals. And the scroll is written in front and on back. And this is this critical thing because this scroll, this unfolding of all of these things is coming from the right hand of God. And that matters. And nobody is worthy to open the scroll. And so one of the elders comes to John and he says, look, the lion of Judah and John looks and he sees one like a slain lamb. And that's going to matter because next week we start talking about the, the great war and the 144,000 and all that stuff. The slain lamb's going to matter because the slain lamb is the one who's the head of the army of God. And if God's army is going to do battle, it must do battle the way that its leader does battle. And this really is, so this really, anyway, next week's sermon. So I guess you're going to have to show up again. Um, so uh, he has this vision and, and he sees the, the slain lamb. And the slain lamb is worthy to open the scroll. And opening the scroll is going to help start to make sense out of what's happening. That's why we're opening the scroll. Why are we reading the scroll? We're reading it because it's in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. This is the contents of why things are happening the way they are. And that's important for us. So what's unfolding in the scroll, and I'm going to say this on the front end and keep referring back to it, is this is an opportunity for us to see all the different ways that mankind tries to create order out of the chaos of this world. And the question that John wrestles with is, does it work? Do all the ways that we, we try, that we're told, if you just do this, if you just have this, if you have enough money, if you have enough power, if you have enough status, it, all these things, if you just have these things, does it work? Does it actually bring peace? Now, it may bring peace to some, but does it bring peace to the world? Or is your peace built on the backs of other people's effort? Because foundationally, that is not how the kingdom of God works. And so we're going to wrestle with this, this piece, okay? So let's read chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, I don't even know what this sounds like, come! I, I, don't, I got three more attempts, so maybe I'll get better at it. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. Oh my gosh, we're talking about the four horsemen apocalypse. Can't wait to figure out what that is. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, let's talk about this for a second. When I was a kid growing up in church, they had this uh, video that we used to watch on a reel-to-reel the big reel-to-reel -reel movies with the in the background, right? Uh, you all remember. You remember. Um, transcended by the overhead projector 
and the slide show. I mean, we were high tech back in the day. This film was called In the Twinkling of an Eye, and they always showed it at church camp because it was supposed to scare you. And each one of these seals was like this moment where the white horse and the steam coming out of the nose. And you know, that was pretty good, wasn't it? And it, and it ran, and it was like, ah, the white horse is coming. I, and it was all marked as individual time periods in history. And it was all like, and this is coming, and this is coming. And now that we're at the end of the seven seals, guess what? It's the end times, and God's coming back today, and you're going to hell, so you better fix it. Like, that was the movie. So now you don't have to watch it. Uh, and it's supposed to scare you. And I kept thinking, like, okay, that is... That is not God. Like, even as a kid, there was something that I checked in that that was like, there's something not God about that. Not at all. It's like God is loving and redeeming and compassionate and luring the world back to himself because of his great compassion and love. And then all of a sudden, he's like, I've had it. I'm kicking butt. Right? Like, that just doesn't... If you're the first readers of this letter, there is no way that you're like, and, and so in a thousand years, when so-and-so comes to power, it's going to be based on this and the Nobody who is in the position of persecuted would ever find hope in God's going to do something a thousand years from now, so you ought to be hopeful about that. Well, great, well, my, my child just got killed for my faith, so... Yay for a thousand years from now. Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. So what is this white horse? This white horse, without question, I mean, if you think about it, who wears a crown, carries a bow, and conquers? Who does that? Think first century, who does that? At least it's a king. Probably Caesar. Does that make sense? I would recommend, and I would, I would probably defend this violently, um, probably not violently, but adamantly. I mean, I'm not going to punch you hard, uh, but I might kick you. Uh, this, is at, this, is, this white horse is political power. And remember what I said at the beginning of this. The unfolding of this scroll is all the ways that man tries to deal with how we put the world back together. Man has tried throughout the, the history to be able to use political power to control the world, right? We want to bring peace. This is how Rome did it, political power. But that's not the only way they did it. Let's read on. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Tom! I, like thunder. And out came another horse, bright red. And this rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. Okay, so let's think about this. What takes peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and he was given a great sword. So what takes peace from the earth because people are killing one another with a great sword? What is that? War. Military power, without question. Has mankind ever tried to leverage military power to control the world? to bring order to chaos. Rome's mantra was piety, war, victory, peace. Oh, we'll bring peace to the world, but we're gonna do it because we're gonna kick your butt and take away your opinion. That's how we'll bring peace to the world. 
And John's adamant appeal is that isn't going to work either. Political power doesn't actually bring peace to, it does for some, as long as you're in the right camp. Military power doesn't either. The kingdom of God is about the redemption of all things. And so the question is, how do we get there? Next one. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, come. It's thunder. And looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. Now think about this, scales. This is the scale, like the two-sided scale. So what do you think immediately? What's that? Justice, money, economics. This is, remember, in the ancient world, they didn't have a, a piece of paper that said, this is worth $1. You know why? Because our government says it is. They actually had real money that was actually weighed out, and it was actually real. It wasn't fiat, like welcome to American currency, or by the way, global currency, which is given value arbitrarily by a group of people who say it's worth something because they say it's worth something. That's not how their economy worked. It was actually weighted out. So a certain weight of uh, wheat was worth a certain weight of gold, and you would weigh these out, okay? Has anyone in history ever tried to control the world through economic power? Not me. And I heard what was seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now here's an irony. That quote verbatim has been found in manuscripts in the market in Sardis, which is one of the cities, one of the seven cities that the seven letters of the Church, Churches of Revelation was written to. Sardis was one of the letters. That quote is found in Sardis. Maybe there's a contextual con conversation to be had here. Maybe these people would have been like, I don't even have to guess what that means. This is about controlling people through money. Like we do this all the time. We do this on micro levels. We do this on macro levels. We do this in our jobs. Bosses control people with money. Like it's a great motivator, right? Oh, you don't do your job? Okay. You don't have to do your job. You don't get paid, right? Like we leverage this all the time. And what John's going to say here is that may sound like it's going to work, but it only works for some. It doesn't actually put the world back together. It's still about manipulation and control. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and thunder. And looked, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence by wild beasts of the earth. Now, let's talk about this one for just a second. Because government, military power, and economic power, man can control, right? But pestilence, we don't control. So how is this connected to those things? Well, let me throw this out. How many of you in the 80s and 90s were going to church 
and either thought or heard somebody say AIDS is God's wrath poured out on the homosexual community. Bullcrap. That is not how God does business. But we try to make sense out of famine and disease as if it's God righting the wrongs of this world. What John says is, that's not how things function. That's us trying to make sense out of bad things happening in this earth. Bad things, disease, famine, pestilence, it happens on this earth because sin entered the picture. It's not because God's leveraging it to control you. That doesn't feel like God at any level. It's not consistent with the whole rest of the scriptures. Don't email me. When he opened the fifth seal, by the way, six verses given to the first four seals they're kind of bang, 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 bang. The rest of the chapter given to the last two seals. Like, we probably ought to pay attention to that, that these last two seals are way more important than the first four. And we make a big deal out of the four horses, and we don't really see, like, and then there's this, and things start to actually change. When this happens, things start to change. What is it? I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they'd borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Which, by the way, just for the record, there is no conversation about Asia Minor in the first century that doesn't include all kinds of earthquake language. It's, there was earthquakes in... 17, there was earthquakes in 20, there's an earthquake in 22, there's an earthquake in 60. All of these earthquakes, all were dramatically affecting these seven churches to whom this book was written. All of them were engaging in uh, conversations with the Roman government to try to get money to rebuild their cities when the earthquakes happened, except for Laodicea, which happens to be one of the seven churches. Laodicea said, we don't want Rome's money. We'll build it ourselves. Look at us. We don't need Rome. We're rich, which is why Paul says to the Laodicean church, or why John says to the Laodicean church, you say you're rich, but you're poor, blind, pitiful, naked, and weak. Like maybe there's a, maybe they're real people in a real place at a real time. Maybe, like, Maybe. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, which, by the way, is a direct quote out of Ezekiel. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and every slave, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains." calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide from us 
uh, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Now, I wanna talk about this because what happens is we have government and military and economic power and pestilence and then we have this sacrifice of the saints. And when the earthquake happens, even the people that thought they had power went and hid and cried out the same as the ones who had been martyred cried out, deliver us. All of these things that we believe give us power when push comes to shove doesn't amount to jack squat. I guarantee you when an earthquake happens and your house falls on your family, you'd give all your money back to have them alive again. But it isn't happening. And earthquakes don't, they're no respecter of position or money or status or power. They're no respecter of those things. They kill without discretion. You know, I, uh, so I fly a lot and because I travel around a lot and it was, I was in an L-1011. Have any of you ever seen this plane? It is like 393. It is huge with these huge jets, seats across, 393, um, which if you're in the middle, in the middle, that's bad. Um, you pay extra money to sit on the outsides. But anyways, it is a huge airplane, and I'm flying in this plane, and we hit rough air, right? You, ever, you guys ever experienced the joy of turbulence? And I mean, it is like just throwing us around, throwing, throwing us around. And I thought to myself, like I marveled at this plane as we're getting in, like the jet, the size of the jet is like two of me tall. It's huge. It's this massive, like how in the world does man create the kind of power needed to put this thing in the air? And I'm in it. <laughs> like I, I had that kind of belief in what man could do. And the wind, like this just unstable air currents, just throwing it around like it's a, you know, we think we're so powerful. And God's like, <laughs> you know he's got to be in heaven going, hey, hey, Michael, check this out. You know, watch this plane. <laughs> and then he stables it out. I was just playing. I was just playing. Like, you know... You know, like, we think we have so much power and control. Look at, look at the things that man has done. Look at what we can accomplish. And the Roman cities in this area were impressive. Come with me, I'll take you to see them. They're, they will take your breath away. In an earthquake, in an instant, it's all gone. It's all gone. And regardless of power, status, position, everything that you thought would give you peace, you cry out to the only one who actually has peace and you say, deliver us the same, whether you have no money or all the money. Now there's so much that I want to say about this passage and I'm running out of time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start tying this down. Zechariah 6 is in your notes. Not going to read it. Zechariah 6 is the place where John pulls his four horses from. The four horses in Zechariah 6 are sent to the four corners of the earth. The culmination of this comes with the crowning of a king. Guess what? These four horsemen come out of heaven 
And the culmination of this is the crowning of a king. Like John is not really all that insightful or creative. He's pulling from things that have already happened. Why? Because his call constantly to these people is no matter how bad it gets, we've been here before. We've been here before, guys. God's people have endured because they understood where the source of real peace comes from. And there's all kinds of other cultural references in this passage that I I just don't have time. I just don't have time to pull apart. But I want to land the plane on this. These seven seals as they open up. This is an unfolding of how man tries to leverage bringing peace into his life. The problem is the ways that we try to bring peace are good for me, not necessarily good for you. So I want peace, and so I'll work towards my own peace, but if it's not okay for you to have peace in the process of me having peace, I'm not going to lay down my own peace so that you can have it. Me first. My peace first. Then if there's enough peace to go around, I'm going to give it to you. This is the way that the world defines peace. This is the way that the world defines order. Is I'm going to take what's for me, And then if there's anything left for you, then that's going to be enough. John's appeal in Revelation, and this is going to happen over and over and over, is that it's not about me securing my own future. It's about me understanding who actually holds the universe together, and I'm going to trust that he's going to work it out, and I don't got to worry about anything else. Now, we would call that faith. And we would say, yeah, I trust that the Lord works it out, really. I, I remember um, when 9-11 happened, the, you know, the plane flew into the side of the Twin Towers, and our church had a prayer meeting, and there was a guy that was there. It was a very moving experience. Um, there was a guy that came in, and he had family, he'd grown up in Boston, and so he had family back east, very close to where this all shook down. And I was, he was visibly shaken, and, and he said, man, I am so scared right now. And I was like, really, tell me about that. And I'm like, he's going to tell me about his family, and he had, he had, you know, family members or good friends that were there or whatever. Here's what he said to me. He said, I have $6 million on the stock market, and I'm probably going to lose it all. Like, Really? 3,500 people just lost their life. You're worried about your money. And we look at that and go, oh my goodness, that's so silly. But how many of us panicked a little bit in 2007, 8, and 9 when the economy dropped out? How many of us freaked out? Like, where did my retirement go? I wonder if our brothers and sisters in Ephesus and Sardis and Thyatira would go, man, I'm so shook up about your retirement. Hang in there, brother. You can endure. Or would they call us to a deeper walk and say, maybe you've given yourself over to one of the horsemen that really doesn't matter as much as you think it does? I'm not saying don't plan for retirement. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, don't you dare think for one second that if it all went away, God would be less God and that you would have to freak out about it. 
This is John's message. And these people, see what we've done in our culture because we stand on the wrong end of the Roman sword. What we've done in our culture is we've exchanged loss of privilege for persecution. And that's not what's happening in our world. These are people that were actually being butchered for their faith. We may have to sell a car or a house. It's not the same thing. And I wonder how many of those things that we truly put our hope in really are no hope at all. Now, one of the things that I love about our sermon team is that we get to put sermons together as a group. And, and Marty had a great blog post on this section of Scripture. I want to read a section of it um, for you that I think is particularly pertinent uh, as we tie this down. So let's read this. These people were not baffled by the contents of Revelation. The people there understood the immediate application to their immediate context. The Jewish listeners in their midst were equipped to expound on the teaching of John deliberately buried in his letter as a source of encouragement and exhortation. Please understand that the original readers would certainly not have projected these pictures and ideas into the future. These references were about their own brothers and sisters, uncles and cousins. The souls of those who had been slain were people they knew by name. I believe one of the reasons you and I have a hard time interpreting and understanding the book of Revelation, the reason we immediately project its meaning into the future, is because we corporately don't know what it's like to be on the side of true persecution. We don't know what it's like to sit on the other side of the Roman sword. We don't know what it's like to watch the systematic and premeditated pursuit and extermination of our fellowship. And it affects our ability to understand an apocalyptic letter written to a group of people who fear for their lives we don't know how to hear its message of perseverance and the call to remain vigilant and steadfast, even to the point of death. And quite frankly, we've spent most of our time at the handle end of the sword. For the last 1,700 years, we fought for our own rights instead of pursuing the self-sacrificial way of Jesus. We've been more concerned with culture wars than we have been with anything that would have ever occupied the thoughts of those people who preserved the faith we too often misinterpret. We have mistaken the loss of privilege for persecution. There is a host of people slain under the altar in the book of Revelation who cry out for us to remember what they signed up for, what they gave their lives for. They didn't give their lives so that we could live comfortable American dreams and protect our privilege. They laid their lives down because it's what their rabbi did. He taught them how to trust in and live out a narrative of self-sacrifice. It's the story we're invited to trust too. May we honor their memory, and more importantly, may we hallow the name of God. Listen, the best testament of who your God is isn't the size of your house. And again, it's not about your house. It's about what we choose to say gives us security. And we get lost in these culture wars of whether or not Starbucks is going to put Christmas on their coffee cups. Oh, we're Christians. We keep the Christ in Christmas. I would invite you to the same reality this year. Let's see how it goes. How many of us lose our passion for Jesus in the midst of, oh my gosh, if I don't buy this person a present, then I'll be all offended. But if I buy that a person, I got to buy that. I hate Christmas. That's how we do Christmas. 
I, and I mean, we're in Washington, so like we get all hooked up on the legalization of pot, but I think there's a deeper conversation to be had there. Like whether or not people smoke pot is an extension of a problem that's a lot deeper. It's at a lot deeper level. And I think our brothers and sisters in this context, I think they would tell us a couple of things. Number one, I think they would say, uh, get over yourselves. Start talking about things that matter. And number two, I think they would say this. You can do it. Hang in there. Keep going. Keep doing the right thing, enduring, believing that for him who overcomes, there is a crown awaiting him. Keep going. You can. We see you. We've been there. We know. Keep going. With that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table. And so for those of you that are passing communion out, I want you to go grab that. If you're new with us, we have an open table. And what that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake in it. But we want you to hold those elements till the end and we will um, take them all together. So while they're passing that out, I want to work through some implications for this message. Implication number one, God remains unmoved in the face of worldly chaos. Any time that we open a line with, but wouldn't God want me to, you're probably not going anyplace good. But wouldn't God want me to be happy? Hmm. I, I wonder if our brothers and sisters in Ephesus would say, yes, man, pursue your happiness. Mean, whatever, whatever you need. Next implication, you're never alone. There are always others in the story, past, present, and future. There are people who are running this race with us and those who have also already done it. Thank you. Keep going. This is why Paul has Hebrews 11 and 12 in the book of Hebrews. By faith, this person. By the faith, this person. And we look at these great moments of God doing great things. And then he says, but then there were these other people that were sawn in two and were martyred and were thrown in prison and beheaded. And the world was not worthy of them. And then he begins chapter 12 with this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the glory set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. This is the, the, the early church leaders, this is their appeal you're not the first one to be here and you won't be the last. Keep going. You can do it. 
maybe the simple application is for those of us that are in jobs where people don't treat us well, how are we supposed to respond? Maybe if we're in marriages that we don't want to be in. I uh, wrote a blog post this last week called When I Said I Do, I Didn't Know What I Did. <laughs> it's kind of true. <laughs> 24 years into marriage, I'm, there's a lot of, oh, that's not what I thought marriage meant. Listen, you're not the only one that stood in a marriage that was struggling. Keep going. Keep going. Next implication. Here we go. Our faith is built on the foundation of those who endured unbelievable persecution because of their ultimate belief in resurrection. And once again, we call back to the reason why these people were able to do it was not some glad morning when this life was o'er. It was the proof of the empty tomb. That was what gave them power to endure. Because even in our darkest, darkest moments, and even in death, God proves he's bigger. And if my death tells the story of a God who's bigger than the lies that this world gives me, then so be it. Last implication. Our belief in resurrection should call us to lay down our fear and walk shamelessly in the way that leads to life. In a life that is truly life. which is a great segue into why we do communion every week. We do this because this is a reminder of what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's not about pressing our rights. It's about laying our lives down to tell a story. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And so Lord, we just want to say thank you for um, the testimony of all those souls under the altar that refused to believe the lies that the world gives us. And Lord, I know that for, even in my own heart, the lies of this world are subtle. They're so easy to buy into. And so Lord, I pray that you would give us real clear insight and discernment into what your agenda is for us and how this world actually gets put back together. God, give us courage and faith to live in that truth in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.